There are two dilemmas that rattle the human skull. How do you hold on to someone who won't stay? And how do you get rid of someone who won't go? From Pod 617 Productions, it's Shine On, a presentation of Berkman, Botker, Newman, and Shine. Now here's your host, attorney Evan Shine. Episode one of the Shine On podcast, I'm Evan Shine, your host, and I'm fired up and I'm excited to be with you. And with me, the legendary and great executive producer, David Yass, on the other side. David, how are you? Thank you. Yes, I am legendary. I am great. And I am even more fired up than you are, Evan. We've been looking forward to this show for a long time. Absolutely, David. And we have an absolutely incredible show today. Dr. Gene Safer is our featured guest on today's episode. Dr. Safer is a psychotherapist in New York City with over 45 years experience, and she is the well-known author of seven books, including her latest book, which is absolutely tremendous, I Love You, But I Hate Your Politics. She has contributed articles to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Oprah Magazine, and many more publications. We're going to talk to Dr. Safer about navigating a politically mixed marriage. And David, as we talked about in prepping for the show, this cannot be timelier with the election, the tension, and the divisiveness that unfortunately fills politics and our marriages today. Yeah, I can't think of anything more topical than this. And you were shrewd to bring up Thanksgiving because as we record this, we sit here about, what are we, about just about a week. Actually, it is. It's a week right before Thanksgiving as we record this. And there is no more delicate situation than the drunk uncle who wants to tell you how much he loves Trump and then the millennial daughter who is is freaking out, right? No, absolutely. Well, look, whether it's in person or over Zoom this year, it's, you're definitely going to want to be in control of the mute button if yeah. it's uh, Thanksgiving <laughs> yeah. holiday over Zoom. Yeah, yeah. But she was, what a great interview, man. She, she's got so many stories and just really good advice because this comes up with all of us, right? I was just thinking, like, I've got friends that I would like to maintain friendship with them, even though they, we may be completely on other sides of either sides of the, the aisle. No, she was absolutely fantastic, and in, in the interview is not one that you were going to want to miss. And David, I want to start with my vision for the show and the Shine On podcast, which has, has been in the works throughout 2020, and I'm incredibly excited about it. And... I'm a divorce attorney, matrimonial attorney in New York City, and that's all I do. That's all my firm does, Berkman, Bonker, Newman, and Shine. And we're going to talk about all things related to marriage, money, business, divorce, sports, entertainment, and life. From my perspective as a divorce attorney, what I see all day, every day. And really with the Shine Up podcast, I want to pull back the curtain on the divorce process Talk about how people end up in my office. Where does it all start? And how can people stay out of my office altogether? And I'm hoping to give an inside look. What really happens in the courtroom? What happens at the negotiation table? Are the stories that you hear about, are they fact or fiction? I'm going to break it all down. And to help me do that, we're going to have fantastic guests and top experts on the show we will talk to professionals and leaders in the world of finance, sports, entertainment, business, mental health, and much more. And David, I want to start by getting into a few themes. And as a divorce attorney who works with athletes and entertainers and a team of other professionals, estate planning attorneys, financial advisors, whether I'm negotiating a prenuptial agreement for an athlete or musician, entertainer, there's an article that caught my attention a few weeks ago. And the article was about a financial advisor, or should I say ex-financial advisor, Ash Narian of Irvine, California, who received a 37-month sentence and was ordered to pay $18.8 million in restitution. And this is an advisor who stole money from several athletes, notably Major League Baseball pitcher, San Francisco giant Jake Peavy, and former New York Jet Mark Sanchez. And I have to tell you what, 
when I read this article, I was sick to my stomach to read that he received a sentence of 37 months. Really? 37 months? Now, I know the fine of $18.8 million is quite substantial, but come on. I'll also note it's less than what he reportedly stole, but to me, that's not what it should be about. The fine, the restitution. This is somebody who was a trusted advisor and stole money from his clients. This was someone who his clients and the athletes and entertainers that trusted him to protect money and to be part of their inner circle. He failed them. And when I read a sentence of 37 months, something about that just doesn't feel right to me. And reports are that Narian was an investment advisor who ripped off his clients from December 2009 to December 2016, where he advised his clients to invest in a money-losing online sports and entertainment ticket company in Illinois. But he failed to tell him that he was on the board and that the business was failing, risky, and it was unprofitable. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure that some of the clients are feeling some sense of relief and maybe even justice with this sentence. Or maybe not. I don't know. But here's what I do know. Where's the message to other trusted advisors, sports agents, other financial advisors, attorneys, people who work with clients, athletes, entertainers? And to me, there's a bigger problem that needs to be discussed and addressed. How do these real-life horror stories not happen in the world of sports and entertainment? And I'm not looking to, to blame anyone in particular, but I think there needs to be greater responsibility from everybody involved. The leagues, the teams, the players' associations, the individual players. And there has to be a commitment to education and financial literacy resources and programs for athletes, entertainers. And I think that agents and advisors need to be thoroughly vetted by the leagues and by the Players Association. And I think in many ways, real progress has been made over the years. And I think there's some absolutely terrific financial advisors, agents. You're seeing former players start programs to help current players and rookies when they come into the leagues to share with them what they've learned over their many years playing professional sports. And as a former sports agent myself, and now an attorney who works with athletes and entertainers, whether it's to protect assets and income in prenuptial agreements or in the event of a divorce, the reality is athletes earn a lot of money very quickly at a young age. And athletes need a team of advisors a team that they can trust to work with them and people who have been vetted and approved and who understand the complexities and needs of athletes and their families and people who put an emphasis on financial literacy education programs. Thanks, Evan. Great stuff, of course, as usual. What you, you mentioned, I, I, being the Red Sox fan, I, I couldn't help but notice you mentioned Jake Peavy, who's one of the victims of that financial advisor's scam. And I remember he was a member of the 2013 Red Sox championship team and then went on to win a World Series with the Giants as well and then reported for spring training the next season and found out that this guy had taken him for somewhere between 15 and $20 million. And so... In a way, you don't want to feel bad for Jake Peavy because he's probably still on his feet. But, my God, to, to have your entire like life savings just can, just disappear like that, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. And, and David, it's, uh, it's one of those things, it, it's hard to believe yeah. that it took place over such a long time frame. Mm. But it's real. Look, when you trust someone to handle your money, to handle your life in many ways— someone you put a lot of trust in. And to find out that this happened, it, it, it's absolutely it's devastating. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much money somebody has. You never want to hear that something like this happened. Right. All right. Well, as we do on every episode of Shine On, are you ready for the docket, my friend? Let's do it. Let's do it. And now, let's see what's on the docket. Well... 
in no particular order, Counselor, we have the latest in the the saga that is NFL stars Earl Thomas's divorce, or is it a divorce? So Earl Thomas, his wife, Nina Thomas, filed for divorce just recently, seven months after holding Earl Thomas at gunpoint for being in bed with two women and his brother. You hate it when that happens. As reported by TMZ, she submitted the paperwork on November 3rd. If you, I think it's worth, Evan, taking a quick listen to this uh, podcast called The Working Man. And I just stumbled upon this. He does a nice job of recapitulating some of the silliness of it. Why don't we take a quick listen? This is from The Working Man podcast. Welcome back, everyone. This is Jason speaking here one more time with the next Crimson Capsule. So a few months ago, I did a story when it broke about Earl Thomas and his wife. Now, Earl Thomas got caught up with his side chick. His wife came in with the pistol and she subsequently got arrested for that. She got bailed out. He bailed her out. And of course, they got back together. Now, Earl Thomas, part of the Legion of Boom, he was with the Seattle Seahawks. Now he plays for the Baltimore Ravens. Well, as most relationships go, once you get caught cheating like that, the end is imminent and that is the case yet with Mr. Earl Thomas now he probably should have left her after that because let's just be real he probably wasn't nothing anyway right he probably was a dog anyway whatever <laughs> but he took her back and when you do that we also talk about the lock box theory right she compiles all these things that you did the cheating the time you left the toilet seat up the time you got to wash dishes, you didn't clean up the couch, all that stuff. She composites it all together. And one day you'll come home and you forget to pick up your shoes off the front door. And then she just pulls the pin on the Well, I don't know how much uh, we need to hear more from the working man. But he, brought, he brings up a couple interesting points. Now, th- this has been one of these. It, for some reason, I'm reminded of Andre Bad Moon Rising. You remember him when he was in the that- NFL? Absolutely, of course. Yeah, similarly tumultuous relationship with his, at the time, companion, Lisa Lefty Lopez, who's now deceased, but she burned down his house at one point. I remember that. Anyway, I don't know. Hopefully there's, there's no burned houses in Earl Thomas. But is it is this, just tell us your sort of thoughts on this. We also found out just recently that maybe they're actually not getting divorced because just a few days ago, there was a post on Instagram with Earl Thomas seemingly getting along with his wife very well in their car traveling someplace. So I don't know how you make heads or tails of this, but you've de- dealt with a lot of athletes and celebrities. Is this typical for this kind of case or what? David, it's, it's a great clip, and, and there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Depending on the day, it's hard to know what, what, what's happening. I mean, right. are they getting divorced? Are they not getting divorced? It, it's, we're in a day and age where news is breaking on Twitter, news is breaking on Instagram. If you, 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 know, you log into her account, they're getting divorced. If you log into his account, they're not. And I think part of the issue is anytime celebrities and athletes and entertainers publicize their relationship, publicize their divorce, nothing good happens. Nothing good happens for them as a couple and nothing good happens for Earl Thomas as a professional. There's reports that teams were hesitant to sign Earl Thomas mm. because of off the field concerns and whether it was this, whether it was something else. Who knows? But you never want your personal life to affect your professional life. And I think we saw that with Earl Thomas and his struggles to land with a new team, new organization. And it's a problem. And again, there's a lot to unpack, but you know, it, part of it comes down to if athletes can just learn to stay off social media and not publicize, not litigate their personal lives, everybody would be in a better situation. Yeah, and, and he, I guess the, the Working Man podcast host there pointed out that spouses have a way of keeping keeping track of all the bad stuff that has happened. And I guess when you're on social media, you're literally leaving a digital trail of all this stuff that can be used against you, right? Yeah, it's a great point. The whole the landscape of evidence and what's admissible or the ways in which we keep track of things we're living in a digital age and we're living in a world where somebody can post a picture of you with a timestamp on Facebook. And, and you may not even know that the picture was taken. And when you're a celebrity, you're an athlete, you need to be ultra careful and ultra protective of 
yourself, your family, and your profession. Well, number two on the docket is the issue of divorces in the era of COVID-19 and the pandemic. And you and I have talked about this before, Evan. The conventional wisdom has been that divorces are probably up. And I know that you've been busy. Of course, you're always busy. But according to a recent article in the Washington Post by Bradford Wilcox, who's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, divorce is down despite COVID-19. So it would seem that there's a lot more stress on people's marriages, having to spend so much time together. But according to the American Family Survey, cited by Professor Wilcox here, on the one hand, 34% of married men and women age 18 to 55 report that the pandemic has increased stress in their marriage. However, the same data shows that there's actually been a decline in divorce filings for 2020 from data that is kept by certain states. So it's presumably exemplary of the country. Divorce filings are down 19% in Florida. Figure, go figure that one. 13% in Rhode Island, 12% in Oregon, and 9% in Missouri. Well, you get the point. This is article is a surprise to me. I don't know about you, Evan. I think the article brings up a really interesting point. And as we enter the 10th month of the pandemic, people are struggling. People are in quarantine. People are spending more time in apartments, in homes than ever before. And I'll tell you what, if you're a young couple and this was the year that you tied the knot, I'm not so sure a lot of people would have walked down the aisle if they knew that they were going to spend the first year of their marriage and relationship in lockdown and quarantine. And I've had couples who have ended their relationships, engagements, because of the stress associated with the pandemic, the stress associated with planning a wedding this particular year. And to me, and I don't think we've seen really the effect of the pandemic on divorce rates. And I don't think we've reached the tip of the iceberg. And to me, David, when, when there's a return to normalcy, and people are back at work, people are out to dinner with friends and colleagues. I'll tell you what, people are going to want to spend more time than ever, more time than ever before, away from their home. Because people have been locked up in quarantine with their families without the outlets, without being able to enjoy the escapes that we're used to. And I think we'll see that increase in that spike in divorce when things go back to normal at whatever point that will be. And I'll tell you what, the other thing I'm seeing is for a lot of people who would sit at dinner, go to cocktail parties and hear their friends complain about their marriages and their relationships. And people thought to themselves, not me, I'm in a perfect marriage, perfect relationship. Ask those people now how life is how their mm-hmm. marriages, because many people who thought they had these picture-perfect marriages and relationships, they're now realizing they don't. And that's because it's a function of the amount of time that people are spending together, that people need to communicate, need to have conversation. And it's not easy. Communication's hard. Working remotely has its challenges. Working remotely with kids running around a home or apartment in close quarters, all day, every day, it exposes a lot of holes in relationships that either weren't noticed or people just covered up for years. Great point all. And as this podcast goes on, you'll continue to update us as to how the pandemic continues to affect divorce because sadly, quarantine's not going anywhere for a number of months. And David, now I want to shift gears and just briefly talk about the coronavirus and the pandemic and the impact on relationships. As we head into the 10th month of the coronavirus, here's the truth from what I see as a divorce attorney. People are struggling. People are really struggling. And I see it all day. And people are struggling in different ways, emotionally, financially, physically, politically, socially. This is a time of unprecedented stress and exhaustion with an optimistic future that people find hard to believe in. And I think people know that the light at the end of the tunnel exists. 
but I think people have a hard time, more now than ever before, believing that they will get to see that light. And the truth is, people haven't spent this much time together since their honeymoon. People are working from home. Children are learning virtually. Parents are playing the roles of assistant teachers. Restaurants, bars, gyms, the outlets that make us feel normal. Much of that is closed. And it's either closed or it's restricted to the point where the enjoyment is just not there. But when people ask me about divorce rates and the pandemic, I'll tell you what. I don't even think we've hit or reached the tip of the iceberg on divorce rates. I think we'll see it when there's a return to normalcy down the road. And David, I just want to briefly talk about the politics and the election. Politics and the election, really the impact on relationships. And I don't know about anybody else, but I was exhausted watching the election and the coverage. And I couldn't get enough the boards and the vote counts and how many votes were outstanding. I couldn't turn off the TV. But the political tension, as we'll talk about with Dr. Schaefer, it's real in marriages and households. Because of the political temperature, it's at an all-time high. On the other side, Dr. Schaefer is going to join us next on the Shine On Podcast. Our featured guest this week on the Shine On Podcast is Dr. Gene Schaefer. Dr. Safer is a psychotherapist in New York City for over 45 years. She is the author of several books, including her latest book, which is absolutely fantastic. If you don't have a copy, order it online, pick it up. The title is I Love You, But I Hate Your Politics, How to Protect Your Intimate Relationship in a Poisonous Partisan World. Dr. Safer has contributed articles to the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Oprah Magazine, many more publications, and she has appeared on various news media. She's nice enough to join us. Dr. Safer, I appreciate the time. How are you? I'm delighted to be with you. This is a topic that is only going to get worse by the day, by the minute. And uh, I think we can do something about people understanding it and not going crazy and destroying their family life and their personal relationships. And Dr. Schaefer, you bring up a fantastic point, because right now it feels that the political temperature is at an all-time high. And every day that goes by, it increases, and the political divide in relationships, it's real. Oppositional defiance in marriages, I see it as a divorce attorney. Tell me what you see. Well, I'm getting, from the, since, since the election, I'm getting about 10 desperate emails a day from people whom I don't know, saying, what do I do? My mother said she'll never talk to me again. I'm never going to talk to my father again. Our relationship is breaking up. I I just discovered that my boyfriend of 20 years is a Trump supporter. Really? (laughs) I've never seen anything like this. The the reason I originally wrote the book, actually, was that I was starting to get mail like this right after Trump was elected. And I'll I'll tell you my favorite, for for our listeners, my my favorite, it was my first email of this kind from a stranger. It was a man. He said, Dear Dr. Safer, I'm writing you because I had a terrible problem. I met the woman of my dreams. I've been married three times. I'm a three-time loser, but she is really the one. I'm a Trump supporter. She's a Democrat. Okay, fine. I've done it for 40 years. I know the story. He said, but but after about two weeks of our relationship, she happened to see the bumper, back bumper of my car. It was parked in front of her. This doesn't sound so bad, does it? (laughs) Well, wait. (laughs) On the bumper of my car, he said, this was before the 16 election. He said, or maybe after. It must have been before. On the bumper of my car was a comic bumper sticker. The bumper sticker was Trump urinating on Hillary. Now, when she saw this, she wanted to end the relationship at that moment. But this is just a joke. He said, it's not, no, I wasn't trying to offend anybody. (laughs) He said, what shall I do? She wants me to take it off. What shall I do? So this is my entry into this. So what I said to him, it was a very short note. He sounded like a good guy, actually. I said, 
take it off immediately, civility rules. Fantastic advice. And then I got a note from her saying, thank you. Uh, the fact that he was willing to do this meant the world to me. More than his politics, more than I hated his politics, I love the fact that he listened to my needs. So that was how I started with this. And, and, and I got to tell you, that that's absolutely brilliant advice. And let me ask you this, Dr. Schaefer, why is it so hard for people? You can people, call me Gene, by the way. <laughs> Gene, why is it so hard for people to have a conversation about politics? For people in love, what makes the political discussion so hard for people to have? Well, I think we have to go to psychology to understand that which I've been doing for uh, 500,000 years now. The fact is that most political fights, I'm not talking about a political discussion, which is exceedingly rare. It's, it's the amount of political conversation that's a discussion versus a fight is tiny, tiny. We could put it on the screen very easily for the whole world. <laughs> the problem is that we have a need, a very passionate need to change other people's minds to show them the error of their ways when they disagree with us on any topic. And with people who are close to us, our family members, our, our in-laws, our children, whatever, it's even more desperate because we can't stand the notion that somebody disagrees. And this is what makes more divorces, more, more unfriendings of grandmothers and all of this insanity that's going on because politics has now taken the, the place that religion used to have in our self-identity. So if somebody disagrees with you, if somebody's a Trump supporter and you're for Biden or whatever, it's the end of the world. How can they be a decent person? How can they have any values? Usually what, and some of the people who write to me or call me are people who say, my, my husband believes in children in cages. How can I bear this? Now, does he really? I don't know. I doubt it. But, but you know, I say to them, first of all, that, that I've, that, that I'm an, in an ideal situation to help people with this because I'm married for 40, yes, 40 years in September to the senior editor of National Review. Uh, I am not a, a reader of National Review. <laughs> <laughs> My husband and I, his name is Rick Brookheiser, um, have never voted for the same person except once for Giuliani when he was running for mayor. Ever since that, we, we, but we both vote passionately, constantly. We, we cancel out each other's votes. I know every tell them not to go to vote. Although this year they did lose our ballot, so we couldn't vote. There we go. And, and Dr. Schiff, you mentioned your husband and your relationship and your marriage and the different political views. I'm curious, do you talk politics at home? How, has, how have you managed to navigate being in a relationship, being in a marriage with someone who has a totally different political view than yourself? Well, the main way that, that we do it is that politics is the only thing we don't have in common. I'll, I'll tell you the history of this because it, it, it's important in a way. We met in a group in New York City that sings Renaissance religious music on street corners for free. Neither of us is religious. But so our, when, when he joined the group, I said, oh, this, is a, this guy's got a wonderful voice and he's good looking and he sounds funny and smart. So I asked him what he did for a living. This is the first day he joined. I'd, I'd already been in the group for seven years. We still sing with him on occasion. And he said, I'm a writer. I thought, okay, I was, I was uh, 32 at the time. And he's, he, I'm, he, well, he's, he's a child groom. He was 25. So he's, I'm eight years old. <laughs> Anyway, so, so he said, I'm a writer. And I said, oh, who do you work for? And back came the answer, William F. Buckley Jr. I'm senior editor of National Review. He was the youngest editor of, of, of National Review that's ever in the face of the world. And I thought to myself, and I'm proud of myself for this. I thought, well, one out of two ain't bad. He said, well, <laughs> if he writes for, I mean, Buckley wasn't a Nazi. I mean, wasn't a, so that's, that is where... We, and, and I didn't feel at the time, I don't think a lot of people felt at the time, that you could say, well, I'm never talking to you again because you, you, you were financial. I mean, this, this was not something that happened all the time as it does now. No. I mean, now people go on dating apps. If the person, people don't, Republicans do not put, particularly on the West Coast, I found this out, they never put that they're a Republican on their, on their, 
profile because no woman on the West Coast will go out with a man who says he's a Republican. Well, and Dr. Shea, it could be a great guy, right? Well, absolutely. I, I want to talk about dating because you bring it up and oh, it's a good thing oh. you gave your husband a uh, you know second date. You made it to uh, day two and well, it's fantastic. At the beginning, we did yeah. not have an easy time. I have to say, I have to say, and I also have to say, I, I admit that it was my fault. I'm not, I'm not an obnoxious opponent, but women's issues are, are very precious to me. And I was involved with a man who did not believe in a woman's right to choose. Now, so because people pay me to change their minds, I have thought, well, okay, I'll show him the air of his ways. I'll explain. <laughs> <laughs> again, I mean, again. I'll show him the air of his ways. I'll explain the thing to him. And surely with my powers of persuasion and my charm and my seriousness and all this wonderful thing, really crazy <laughs> crazy and, um, and you know what that, that, that's what makes it work but it, i'm sure in a lot of ways you, you find as you touched on you find things you do agree on and you focus course. on the positives you focus on the strengths in the relationship where you see eye to eye and that's how you make it work well the fact is that a lot of people that agree with me i mean i had a number of boyfriends at that point by that point all of them had been democrats and all of them had not treated me so well so I knew that people who agreed with me were not God's gift necessarily. But one of the things that makes me sad is these days, people don't learn that. Because if you go on an app that is, I hate Trump or I love Trump or whatever, you're never going to meet anybody from the other side, except you're stuck with them in your family, which is why families are falling apart. But people don't realize that politics is not a core value. And this is, this is a very... A radical opinion of mine. And I happen to think that it's absolutely true that there are many people in the world who agree with you completely on every single political fact and who would abandon you, who wouldn't understand you, who wouldn't take, take care of you. I know many of them. It's happened to me. And there are also people on the other side who have political differences that are, you couldn't imagine you could possibly have a relationship who stand by you. And once you know that, the whole, the whole atmosphere changes. And what, what Rick and I decided, we, we've, we've done a lot of dog and pony shows about this, as you can imagine. We just did a, a big interview on CNN. It was a lot of fun, actually. But anyway, we discovered what really counted through adversity. Rick had cancer when he was 37. And I had cancer twice at 63 and 64. And during those times, we saw who showed up and who didn't. And I can tell you, it's not by political party. And we, we created what we called the chemotherapy test. Is when you're lying in bed getting to chemotherapy, you do not ask the political affiliation of the person standing next to you, getting you through it. That's a core value and that what, what counts. And another experience that, that I had at that time that told me something more about this. And these are, these are critical experiences that you have to be open to in order to really be human and to be wise. I had a next door neighbor, we still do, I haven't seen her in eight months or whatever it is. But um, at the time, we were, we were acquaintances. And I was in the hospital for a month with this leukemia. It was curable, but boy, the cure was, was a year of arsenic. I'm not kidding. Anyway, so I was running out of clean clothes and lead and everything. And I think Rick was on a book tour. Something was going on. So I called this woman whom I hardly knew. I mean, we said hello in the hallway like you do in a New York apartment building. I called her. And I said, I said, Bernadette, I, I'm, I'm really sorry to bother you, but I'm running out of clothes in the hospital here. And she said, this was her answer. I said, could you, I, I'm going to ask you an enormous favor. Can you come to the hospital, which was 45 minutes away, pick up my stuff, go home and dry, clean it and wash it and bring it back to me, right? This is, I'm asking a, a virtual stranger. And her answer, I'll never forget. She said, I have three kinds of detergent. I have lavender, I have 
whatever else, and I have whatever else, what kind do you want? And that was the beginning of our relationship. She is a devout Catholic, uh, a devout reader of National Review. She believes in right to life and a million other things that I find anathema. She did my laundry. What else do you need? It's a fantastic point, and, and you, you touch on something, Dr. Schaefer, which I think is incredibly important, core values. And I, I think, you know, and I'm curious to get your take on it, is that are core values lacking right now in relationships? Are people getting lost in the, the nature of politics and the divisiveness and the tone Absolutely. and the current administration? Are people losing themselves and what's most important in relationships right now? There is no question. It's shocking to me. And every once in a while, you find somebody who, who discovers a core value. And I, I interviewed one young woman that uh, she's kind of the moral center of the book. That her father was my swim coach and I loved him very much. And he died very, very terribly. While he was dying and after she, he died, she had, I think, six, he had six siblings. Not one of them picked up a finger to help. Didn't do anything. Who helped her? Her uncle, her one uncle who had moved to the South, become an evangelical and in the military and was a Trump supporter. This man dropped everything, came to her and stood by her side and helped her with everything. And she had been fighting with him on Facebook. This is the thing everybody does now, which is, the most abominable thing you could possibly do. If anybody who looks at the Facebook postings of somebody that they disagree with in their family has to have their head examined because they know it's going to be there and they know it's going to be awful. And, it, and then they unfriend them and it's insane. Anyway, but my young friend did something remarkable. She wrote a letter, an actual letter to her uncle apologizing, saying that she had misjudged him and that she asked for his forgiveness, which he gave her by embracing her. Wow. That's core values. And we think, but I can understand why people think that politics is core values. I and mean, when I think of some of the things that, that Trump does, I think, who can do this? Who, who can not allow the president-elect to get information for a pandemic? What kind of thing is this? But I also know people who voted for him, who admire him or admire his, his, what he's done, and I don't think they're monsters, because I know them, you know? And the thing is that people, even people who agree with you politically exactly, I mean, identical, will have different ways of looking at the world than you do. Seriously, different. Politics is not a guarantee of identity and identicalness. We just think it is now. Because I'm sure we all know people who agree with us that we wouldn't want to be in a room with for five minutes. No, that's absolutely true. And Dr. Schaefer, you bring up an incredibly touching story based on your neighbor that you went through. such a heartfelt, incredible experience. And you bring up, as a psychotherapist, different stories that you've encountered that really touch on core values. And you mentioned the coronavirus. I'm curious, given the pandemic, given the various social movements, has the political debate in marriages, in relationships, has it intensified given the handling or mishandling of certain things such as the pandemic, such as various social movements? Is the political debate in marriages more yes. intense than ever before? It's kind of hard to imagine that it could be any more intense than it is at any given time. You know, it's just so insane. But yes, I do think it's worse. The, the country is, is and, and, and this has also come from the top, from from Trump's presentation of this whole thing, that there are people who say it's going to go away, we shouldn't wear masks, this is personal freedom, and, and, and then people who are outraged by this saying, your personal freedom is going to kill me. So yes, I do think it's worse. I think it's going to continue, I hate to say it, but I think it's going to continue to be worse and worse. You know, I really do. I think Trump is really uh, not going to go easily. We may have to remove him with the uh, equipment from the White House. And his supporters are, are passionately involved with him in ways that I have to tell you, I don't understand. But there it is. And I cannot see it getting better. 
But I think in our personal relationships, we can do something. One-on-one, -on -one, we can do something. I just, I just gotta, I, I get these, these desperate emails from people all the time. And since this, this piece that I was interviewed in the Wall Street Journal, suddenly everybody who has this problem has called me and said, what should I do? You're the, you're the expert, there's no one better to have on. Well, I mean, I, I do have an awful lot of experience in this hard one experience, but anyway, a woman wrote to me and said that she, she her man that she was involved with for a number of years was becoming more and more of a Trump supporter. And they broke up over this and they both feel terrible about it. They, they still talk every day, right? But they don't know what to do. They can't stand it. You know. And I had a conversation with her on the phone about this and asking about what kind of guy he was, aside from the fact that he voted for Trump. And it turned out he sounded like what we would call a mensch. He was a good guy. And, and I said, well, don't, and, and, and I said, don't you think it's worth a try? If you both care, and they were in their 50s. I mean, I don't think she'd ever been married. He'd had a terrible divorce. And I was talking to them about the fact that a lot of what was going on was not about their political differences. It was about the fact that he was very scared to be in a second relationship. And she had to have everything perfect. And I'm, I had a, a conversation with her, and I'm about to have one with him. And I think they have a good chance. But they were, you see, what was important is they knew that this was a problem. They didn't say, as another person who wrote me the same day said, my mother refuses to listen to the truth that I tell her about how horrible everything is in the Republican Party. Well, there's a mess, right? And I told her, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote her an answer saying, you must stop discussing politics with your mother or you will destroy your family. Because I could tell that this woman was obnoxious, that she was pushing her views. This never has ever worked in the world. One of the things people do, and I invented a word. <laughs> I call it article thrusting. I bet you know what it is, right? You take an article or somebody takes an article and they stick it in the face. Or you could do this with a website too. It doesn't have to be a physical article. It's the same thing. You stick whatever it is in the person's face and say, here, read this. This is going to change your mind. Well, it's well, yeah, and just to answer your question about that, is that why in politics are people so fixated on changing someone's mind? When getting someone well, we're to fixated see on this, it, it, it's, it's the most important question that you're asking. We're fixated on this because we always want people to agree with us. It's very anxiety provoking. There's a psychological reason for all of it. That somebody that we love or is in our family or is our intimate sees something very differently than we do. We can't stand it. We feel alone. We feel like, as, as, as I said jokingly, all my powers of persuasion that, that I've been making a living on for 45 years don't work with you. What, what am I going to do? You know? But the fact is, this isn't the end of the world. You could find plenty of common ground with somebody who disagrees politically. I mean, look, if it's somebody in Antifa or somebody who's... who's uh, a, a lunatic on the right, there, there are limits. But within the, the usual, there's a, there's a big broad range of people who are in each party. I mean, I, one of the most interesting couples that I interviewed, they were all fascinating, but one of them was two guys, it was a gay couple, who both voted for Trump. They were having fights. One broke the other's cell phone, one turned over a table and broke it. I mean, really violent fight. Crystal, they also had a few drinks first, right? That always helps. <laughs> and the thing was that, that one of the guys, and I liked them both very much, uh, one of the guys thought Trump was great. He, he was the father he had never had. His fan, a lot of people had this fantasy about, about Trump. The other guy couldn't stand Trump's personality, but thought his policies were good. They, they voted the same way, and they were still breaking each other's phones. Yeah. So that says something important, I think, that we're all crazy when it comes to this. <laughs> That's what it no, says. Absolutely. And you bring up such a great point. And in, in Dr. Schaefer, you touched on things going forward. You touched on you only see politics and relationships intensifying. I'm curious, with a switch in administration, how do you see things unfolding for couples? Do you see it at some point in time, not tomorrow, not the next day, because I tend to agree with you. I don't think the next several weeks and months 
leading up to January will be easy, but in a year from now, in two years from now, do you think it will be easier when there's a new administration, the rhetoric is toned down, there's a different feeling, regardless of who people vote for? Do you think you things right. will change? I wish you were right. I don't think you are. I'm sorry to tell you that. I think the two sides are so entrenched that, that and, and Trump is going to keep trying, of course, to, to rile this up. Some people will, will move and realize that, uh, look, this is insane. I, I, think, I think Biden is, is doing everything right in terms of trying to calm things down. But when people are, are entrenched, you're not going to change them. I mean, there's still people who won't wear a mask because it, it, it violates their individual freedom. You know, you think this is going to stop? I don't. I don't. No, it's a great point. And it, it's it, going to be easy. I, I, I really, I wish I wasn't as pessimistic as I am about it. But, but my point is that we can change it on a one-to-one basis. We can change it in our own lives. Even if the whole world is doing crazy things, we don't have to do them in our marriages, in our friendships, in our families. You know, I just did a piece for USA Today on, on how to go through Thanksgiving without having a political fight. Right. You read my mind. It was my it was my next topic with Thanksgiving and, and the holidays coming up, and I'm sure on on the the holiday menu is going to be the political discourse and conversation. How should people handle it? Well, I recommend first of all, if you are the host or hostess, you make a public announcement when your guests arrive, saying no politics, only only other topics, and you enforce it when people start. First of all, now this this is all based on not drinking too much. As soon as you have more than one glass of wine, that is the <laughs> I guarantee you, because what happens is people raise their voices. I, I, a million people told me this that I interviewed. They raise their voices. The other person interprets it as shouting. Rational conversation ends at that moment. It is possible to have a political conversation, but not one in which you say, ha, your jerk finally lost, or oh my God. The way people do it, they, they, want, to, they want to get the goat of the other side. And when you go in with, with that agenda, it's a hopeless situation. I think people should avoid politics at, at, at Thanksgiving and other holidays. Why, what are you going to get? You're going to change the people? All you're going to do is make the other guests miserable. This I can guarantee. People tell me all the time that they go to, that, oh, there was a fabulous study done in, in, in 2016 with people who had to, to go to, a Thanksgiving uh, party that was across party lines from, from where they lived, spent 40 to 60 minutes less at Thanksgiving than, than other people did. How do you like that? I believe it. I, I, cutting off the time. But no. if, they, if they said, come on, no politics. There's a lot of other things. How are your kids? What's going on? What did you do? If you, if you take charge of it, you don't have to do that. Part of the challenge is getting setting the ground rules and yeah. having people stick to it. Like any other conversation that I see for the couples that I work with in the divorce process, in the engagement process, couples that you work with. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I, I, I've had relationships and this year in particular, engagements that have broken off because of different political views. And who knows if there was something else really well, that- going on below the surface, but it was the, the, the political divide that pushed some people to separating. And I'm curious, is there usually something that's deeper in your experience than just the political divide? A hundred percent. I think that the the number of relationships that break up seriously because of politics are personality issues. Somebody has to stuff their opinions down the other person's throat. Now, sometimes maybe people are a supporter of AOC and and somebody who's a a real right-winger, I think, probably never even would want to be in the same room with each other, so it's not a problem. But, but I think all political fights, virtually, fights I'm talking about, have a psychological basis of trying to, to force the other person to see our point of view and to change their point of view. Doomed from the start. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have a political conversation with somebody who disagrees, but you have to really work to figure out how to do it, and you have to do it abstractly. Now, my husband and I have figured out this in, in some ways. We've worked at it and we've talked about it. how are we going to do this? Right. And one of the things we do is we, we speak in the abstract. He's very knowledgeable about politics. I said, what do you think? Now, he's not a Trump supporter. 
thank God. That would be hard for me. <laughs> some things you can get over and some things you can't. Yeah, but no, I would, I would get over it. I would get over it because if he was a Trump supporter, there would be things that he admired in Trump that were real because that's who he is. Fortunately, there are no things. <laughs> but what you have to do is to think about things like, like, like what's going on with the Republicans now? I mean, here, here's a question I, I, a, a Democrat could ask. Like, like why, why is the whole Republican Party like backing up Trump's wish to hold on when they know it's not going to work? I mean, you could say that in a certain way that you could actually talk about it. What do you think's going on here? What's the motive? Make it psychological, for God's sake. Real, seriously psychological. Or what do you think is going to happen to the to the Democratic Party, where we have such a, a divide of of the far left and the, and the middle that's now in power? I mean, you know, there, there are things we could think to do, but you have to think about it. You can't just go in guns blazing. Your side is wrong. You're putting children in cages. This is what I always hear: children in cages is the thing, right? Rick, Rick reminded me that the children in cages thing actually started in the Obama administration. <laughs> I'm not sure I believe him, but he's probably right. He wouldn't say it otherwise. So you can, you can, if you work at it and talk about how to do it with somebody, you can have a discussion. But that's not how people do it. Unfortunately, it's not. And you bring up children, and, and I want to touch on something. Kellyanne Conway and her husband. They have been in the news. It's well known. They have totally different political views. And their daughter, who came out, their reports, she's looking to emancipate. She's been active on. She's right. <laughs> yeah. She's been active on social media, speaking out against her mother and her father. And I want to get your take on that situation and how parents can have a conversation or not have a conversation, but really how to shield children and shield the child from being caught in the middle, middle of the political divide that exists. And we're seeing it play out in the public eye with Kellyanne Conway and her husband. Well, they're doing, if you did exactly the opposite of what they're doing, you would be kind of right. How to shield the child. These people, they're using this child to try to, to get the child on their side. This is insane. The whole thing, I think they're destroying, I think they're destroying this child's sense of what a relationship can be. And they're putting her in the middle. And I think emancipation is a brilliant idea for her. It says you can't get new parents, you can at least get away from the ones you have. This is insane. They're, they're, they're doing absolutely everything I would counsel people to never do. Because you're thinking of yourself and your own feelings and not of your child. And that's not what parents are supposed to do. That's no, like, you bring up that's like having a divorce in front of in front of your children. Any kind of horrible fight doesn't belong in front of your children. No, absolutely. You're hundred percent correct. And, and and I see it on the divorce side where parents oh. talk to their children, involve the children oh, in the litigation, God. try to influence their kids. And it, it, it's absolutely unfortunate it's a disaster and you never get over it when you're in the middle like that as a child you you feel you're disloyal your parents think of you as disloyal i've seen this many many times i think it's terrible because parents get so obsessed they want an ally so who are they going to get their son or their daughter to be their ally great idea they don't have a friend they don't have a family member they don't have anybody but their child It's true. And then I look at a couple like James Carville, the Democratic strategist, oh, yeah. and, 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 and his wife and Mary Madeline, and they've made it work. You and Rick, you've made it work. And there's a way to handle it. And I've read the book. I absolutely love it. I love the, the interviews and the stories. And then you see what's going on with Kellyanne Conway, and it's everything you're not supposed to do. And the effect of this uh, on the okay. child, on the relationship, you can't recover. No. But people like these two, they're, they love to attack each other. There's something in the dynamic of their relationship that makes them do this. And, and it, make, it blinds them to, the, to what they're actually doing to their child and to their relationship. You know, there's some people who just like to fight. If it's not politics, it's something else. And, and the children of those relationships are the ones who come to me later and say, I, I can't bear this or I never want to be married because of what, how my parents acted. It's tragic. 
I mean, if you're going to have a political fight, which I don't think you should have, for God's sake, don't do it in front of your children. Any more than you have any major fight in front of your children. Children don't get over it. Absolutely. Dr. Schaefer, I want to ask you about dating because you touched on it in the beginning of the interview. Is it harder now than ever before, given the political climate, for people to enter a relationship, start a relationship, when their political views from the person he or she loves is completely opposite? Well, first of all, it's not as much of a problem as I wish it was because people don't even, as soon as they find out somebody voted this way or that way, that's the end of it. They don't even go on a first date. (laughs) I mean, but I'll give you an interesting example from the book since you've read it, you may remember it. A woman was talking to me. She was a Trump supporter and her husband was a passionate Democrat. And he was thinking, he was terrified that she was going to leave him because of her of her uh, affiliation, her, her uh, political affiliation. Now, what this turned out to be about, she said, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to talk about politics with him. No, that he was from Iran, I believe it was. And his mother had left his father in a disastrous divorce situation. So he figured that if the woman that he was married to did not agree with him politically, that it was just like his parents. Now, their disagreements had nothing to do with politics. They said, well, you disagree, you disagree, it'll be over, you'll leave me. And, and this was really, he was convinced of this. So politics took on an aura that, that it wasn't even true. Now, we have this feeling that political difference is fundamental difference. <clears throat> and I can tell you from spending a fair amount of my time in the last 40 years with people at National Review that it's just not true. Politics is important to them. They see the world differently, but in an awful lot of things, they're going to agree. The guy that was the publisher of National Review at the time, who was an avid Trump supporter, when, when I was ill, he called me and he asked me if he could pray for me. And because he was in the, in the choir of his church, because then if he sang, he would be praying twice. The fact that he voted for Trump didn't really bother me. I mean, I wish he had, but. (laughs) Of course, it comes back back to to core values you touched on. And being decent and being a good person. Now, this is a minority opinion, hugely so. It's a minority opinion. But if you look around, you'll find it's true. You know, that people who care about you can come from either side. People who don't treat you well can come from either side. I think that we limit ourselves so terribly if we don't know people from the other side. We, we, we demonize them. I would have. If I hadn't had the accident of, of being married to somebody who was really, I mean, a political journalist, it still is, I would have never probably had anybody in my life other than my father, who was a Republican, but you know, that disagreed with me. What a, what a truncated life. That's a great point. It's a great point. It, it, it's, it's an absolutely you know, fantastic point. And Dr. Schaefer, I, I want to shift gears for a moment, and I want to ask you a question. President Obama released his memoir over uh-huh. the past week or so, and in it, he opens up and he talks about his relationship and his marriage with... Michelle Obama, the uh, the former first lady, and she has been open about the struggles and the relationship and with two young kids and when they enter the White House. I want to ask you about the relationship, whether it's the Obamas, President Trump, Melania, how hard is it for a marriage with kids to enter the White House, the time spent in the White House, under the microscope, and then transition out of the White House, whether it's after four years or after eight years? I think it's unbelievably hard. And it takes enormous sensitivity. And it takes shielding your children. And I I admire the Obamas for how they handled it. And I think Millennia just kept uh, Barron out of there, uh, which was probably the right thing to do. It's, it's a hellacious thing. You're in the spotlight in ways. I think it, I think it damages people it's for children. I mean, they, although the Kennedys also kept their kids out of it. I just, 
I, I think being a political family is very difficult. And you have to, the, the main thing though, is that the parents have to think about it. They can't use their children. They have to shield their children. We, we learned very little about the Obama's children. I thought that was great. I thought it was excellent parenting. Now, one thing I didn't like, uh, Michelle Obama said, <laughs> this, this, I wanted to write her a, a letter about this. She said, with her children, she expected all of them, uh, uh, both of them to, to do two sports. She would pick one of them and they got to pick the other. I was like, she would pick one of them? I would have killed my mother if she tried to pick one of them. Come on, see what your child wants. No, so that I wasn't thrilled about, but otherwise I think she did pretty good. Because I wonder if- Possible the, job. And, and I wonder if how vocal and how open both President Obama and Michelle Obama have been about their relationship, about being in the spotlight. I wonder if that in many ways gives us a little optimism about people having the conversation going mm -hmm. forward, recognizing that challenges may exist in people's own lives and marriages and relationships. And I wonder in many ways if it opens up the conversation and how we view relationships and the political debate a bit different going forward. I, I think it's a wonderful thing to see people working it out and thinking about it. And I think Biden is a superb example of this. He hasn't made a wrong move uh, since he was elected in terms of trying to reconcile, trying to be open to the other side. I actually sent him a copy of my book because I, I had the conduit to him through somebody who blurbed it. And I don't, I mean, I figure he has more important things like the pandemic right now than my book. But, oh no, I gotta tell you, I, I haven't I, been able to put it down and I'm guessing the president-elect won't be know, able to I, either. I wanted, I wanted, to thank him for bringing civility back into the United States. And I really feel that. And I think that is an example. And I think that, you know, I, I am hopeful that he can make a difference in how people conduct relationships. He really is. I mean, I never thought of this guy for one minute until he, he started to run with this. And he hasn't made a false move in terms of presenting that we need to talk to the other side. One other example that I think we cannot put aside is Ginsburg and Scalia. And now my feeling about them is if these two people who do not agree on one thing manage to have a wonderful relationship, what about us mortals? Why can't we do it? There's a story, I know some people who had known Scalia, and one person walked into his office once and saw two dozen huge red roses there and said, what was his nickname? I can't even remember. He said, what are these doing here? And he said, oh, it's, it's Ruth's birthday and I'm giving them to her. And he said, there's some things that are more important than politics. This is for this guy. No, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant, uh, it's, it's a brilliant story. It's a brilliant anecdote. And you, you mentioned hope, you mentioned civility. What advice do you have for couples, people in relationships on how to restore hope, civility, how to have the dialogue, communication, how to restore what is so important to us and really the core values in relationships? You mentioned Scalia, you know, Ginsburg, you, you've mentioned several examples. How do we restore civility to marriage? I have a simple, very, very difficult answer. You have to want to. You have to identify that it's a problem. You have to see that it's your problem, not just your spouse's problem. And you have to have a conversation saying, I don't want this to tear us apart. Let's see what we can do about it. That's what you do. You want to change it. Wanting to change that can change it. If you keep trying to change the other person's mind, heaven help you. There's no way to do it, and you'll just alienate them. But I do think it's possible because look, Rick and I did it. We weren't we weren't even uh, sophisticated at the time. I said, okay, we've got to figure out a different way to do this, you know, because <laughs> this is not working. <laughs> and uh, the last chapter of I Love You But I Hate Your Politics is about our abortion fight and how it how it changed over the years, and how it changed for the better, remarkably. 
because we'd also been through a ton of stuff in a 40-year marriage. Politics does take a back seat unless you're Kellyanne and the lunatic head. You know? <laughs> There's other things that you deal with and you see how the person comes through. And another thing that's important, Rick has never tried to change my mind. I was the culprit. He was not. He, you know, he, he did politics for a living. He didn't need to change my mind. He knew he wasn't going to. He was more realistic than me. I, I had a certain arrogance because of my profession, I think, you know, which I have less of now, I hope. <laughs> At some point down the road, we would love to have Rick on, uh, oh, he, along with yourself, he, he, on a podcast. We, we, we do a dog and pony show all the time. It's, I, I think it's really inspiring to people to see that how different we are and how undifferent we are. Also, we're both writers. Uh, he's been enormously supportive of, of my work and I of his. We read every word to each other. He's just been, we're just finishing. We, he is reading me the Brothers Karamazov. We're almost done. And that's what we do. We have no television set. <laughs> Which is one way, which is another good way to, to not have a political fight. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Schaefer, I have to tell you, this was absolutely fantastic. Tremendous advice for the listeners. It was absolutely great having you on. Again, congratulations on your book, I Love You But I Hate Your Politics. It is absolutely incredible. We appreciate the time on the Shine On podcast. Thank you oh, very much. Delighted to, delighted to be on. David, what a show. Episode one of the books. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, this was an absolute blast. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Shine On podcast. Dr. Safer was tremendous. Don't forget to pick up a copy of her outstanding book, I Love You, But I Hate Your Politics. You can pick up a copy on Amazon today. To the listeners on the Apple Podcast, Spotify, and wherever else you may listen to your podcast, please hit subscribe and leave a review. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter. Again, I'm Evan Shine, and we'll talk to you again real soon.